Hi, welcome to first instalment of Full Mental Jacket. Uh, it's a program that I kind of started a couple of years ago when I was in New Zealand and uh, I did a few videos for some friends to raise awareness for suicide. And uh, essentially it's uh, been something that people have asked me to kind of possibly do in terms of a podcast. So this is my first instalment of that. Uh, look, just a bit of context, I guess, uh, my background for those who don't know me, I'm Clint Adams. I um, I've studied psychology, I've worked in injury management, worked in uh, for the police and have done quite a lot of behavioural and, and uh, um, work with people with PTSD, people that have had psychological problems as a result of, of you know horrific injuries or, or bad things have happened to them. So I guess over the years I've developed quite a number of different techniques and, and interact with a lot of people around injury management to try and work out better techniques to help them uh, deal with the problems that they have. As a result of that, uh, I guess I, I've, I've looked at, at different ways to try and break certain patterns. At the end of the day, uh, what you find, what I certainly found, was uh, a lot of the uh, issues that, that people have will, uh, you know, could start off as just, as just a basic thought or an event that happens and then uh, it can turn into something that, that they can't sort of uh, shake or, or break and they tend to have those same kind of either the same thoughts over and over and over or ultimately they're doing similar things that's creating um, you know negativity in their lives that they can't kind of break and, and that kind of thing so I guess the the key part is just to kind of have a bit of an understanding of, of I suppose how the brain works so essentially when when we're born, we obviously don't know anything. We are born with certain basic instincts that, that we all have and, and then as things happen around us and as we learn and grow and all that kind of stuff, we kind of make sense of the world, of the world and, and our surroundings. Um, a big part, I guess, in that early phase is a lot of it's unconscious because it's not active learning like you would go to school and you know, okay, you're going to learn about English or you're going to learn about that. It's kind of a little bit, uh, unconscious. So when you when you really focus on on the whole person, I guess I, I'll kind of break it down from uh, from you know having your unconscious thoughts, your conscious thoughts, uh, your body, and then also your emotions that sort of come with that. So that's all kind of combined in in making you as a person, and, and there's all various um, impacts all of those have on you. I guess the key part for me when I'm dealing with people that have come to me who've had some trauma so if you use a person who's had uh, a traumatic experience you know someone shot at them or or something like that where I've dealt with police that have had those kinds of things um, essentially it's a little bit around how they consciously think about the event and how they can consciously think their way out of the pattern of events that seems to be forming based on that. So what basically happens is when the person has the event for the first time, whatever that may be, and if it is traumatic at a high level, um, you know, obviously there's a fear component that comes with that. I, um, I kind of break that up into something a bit more simple where if you focus just on the fight or flight, and I'm being very simplistic because I don't want to complicate things around that if people want to know more about the real biology and psychology of that. They can certainly read some good stuff on that. Uh, but in a nutshell, if you've got certain emotions that, you know, let's use just fear and anger, they're very closely related. They come through as a, a fairly normal instinct that most people have. And it's, it's, it's there to get us, you know, the fight or flight 
instinct is there to get us out of uh, you know really bad situations if they arise. Um, it's intended to only last a very short uh, period of time, and essentially, you know, once the the danger has gone away, uh, we calm down again, and, and everything happens. But but that whole cascade, that whole um, event of a a real threat is. Uh, you know, there's a number of responses the body has to that. So, you know, the adrenal gland kicks in. You have like 0.4 of a second or, or something to uh, where the body kicks in the the adrenaline. Your body's heart incre- heart rate increases. You know, your blood pressure is greater. Uh, blood starts to flow into your muscles uh, so that you're, you're getting ready to fight or flight uh, or run. Uh, and so a number of things happen within the body. Now, obviously, when... If you're in a in a in a mindset where you're constantly rethinking that same event, even though it's no longer happening, so this is where the PTSD kind of pattern comes in, where they will they've had the event. Yes, it was a real um, a real event, but now you know it's days later, months later, whatever, and they're rethinking about the event. Now they're actually thinking of the memory of that event and how they recall it. Now some of it might be close to what actually happened. Some of it they can you know, have a bit more of an imagination and they add things to it and all that kind of stuff or they start to think about what could have happened if the person had a shot them. And so it, it leads to a cascade of, of very different thoughts but based on a memory now, not based on what's actually happening as a physical threat there and then. So ultimately now the person's memory and their sometimes or mostly their unconscious thoughts, those, those thoughts pop into their head for no apparent reason uh, they think about the event again. They have all those cascading things that happen as as um, as part of that fight or flight over and over and over. So it, it starts to become a little bit um, detrimental to their health. A lot of things start to happen, and that they they can't sort of shake it. And and all those cascades of that chemical stuff starts to happen in their body, and and different things start to happen as well because um, they they're not trying to change it or they. They're not doing anything that, that kind of interrupts the pattern of the thoughts, which are now becoming negative for them. I mean, there's a really good saying that says, you know, no one ever drowned from falling in the water. They drowned by staying there, and it's no different with, with this stuff. I mean, fear and anger is an emotion that shouldn't be seen as negative. Uh, it's a real emotion. It's been, I say, designed, but um, it, it's there to actually help us um, in various situations. And, and, you know, if you're in real danger and you need to get away and, that kicks in and allows you to run faster and quicker and react differently and all that kind of stuff, then fantastic. But um, when it does that and, and you can't break a pattern and, and it, you know, it really affects your life in a bad way where you're tearful all the time, you're not thinking of, of how you um, can get out of it and all that kind of stuff, then it becomes a problem. So ultimately, the other side of, a, of, of that whole thing is that whenever we're having thoughts and doing things, our neurons fire and when our neurons fire um, in a certain pattern, when you have the same thought, it'll fire in a certain pattern. If you have the same thought again, it'll fire in the same pattern. The more often you do that, it develops, I guess, more of a habitual thinking, and it becomes almost a bit like uh, a rut in the road where you know you can't break away from that because it's just your automatic thinking, and that's where it becomes a bit more unconscious than conscious. So um, you know, once you kind of understand that. That's what you're doing with your own brain. Your unconscious thoughts are taking over a little bit. It's a bit like, um, I can't remember the author, uh, Dr. Dispenza said that uh, you know, your unconscious thoughts is a bit like riding a wild horse and 
if, if you let it go wherever it wants to go, you could end up in really bad places, not necessarily good. Um, so it's important that you know, as a conscious, at a conscious level, you take control of the reins and kind of steer it where it needs to go. So that's kind of part of where full mental jacket comes in, where we're focusing on how do we consciously take control of our unconscious thoughts, our emotions, and then develop that into the body. One of the key things, and I won't go into too much of the detail, but you know, when when we start, when we have a thought, certain things happen, physical things happen in the body, and we send messages from the brain to the body, and then the body responds with an emotion and a feeling, and then ultimately we, we kind of develop over time, as kids and as adults, uh, a, a pattern of where your body actually has quite a lot of um, input in terms of the decision you make because of the way you feel. We tend to think that we. Uh, we use our, our, our heads to make certain decisions, but uh, a lot of times the way we feel because of the pattern that we've evolved of our thinking has on on how we, uh, I guess, feel about any situation, and then that pattern becomes built into the body, and the body ultimately uh, makes that decision or makes you feel, oh, that doesn't feel right, or I like doing this, or I like doing that, so you'll go and do it, and you actually make the decision based on that feeling rather than anything else. So look, with Full Mental Jacket, it's really a matter of when I was doing work with the people in their injury management state and trying to get them changing their thoughts, a big part of it is about trying to do something. Now, there's lots of different ways you can do it, and people have various ideas of, you know, what... um, psychological theories theories or theorists have um, around what techniques to use and that kind of stuff. I, I don't have a favourite or anything. I think anything that can allow you to stay out of uh, a red brain space or, or one where it's going to be detrimental to you and, uh, and move you into a, a blue brain space where you're using your, um, you're using your actual conscious thoughts to do something to break the pattern because it's the only way it's going to happen it won't happen just by osmosis you have to actually it's like when you know people talk about breaking addictions or or that kind of stuff you know at, at a at a real conscious brain level a lot of drug addicts know they shouldn't be taking drugs they know this you know it's, it's all well and good which is why just having information doesn't do anything people have made that decision because some you know over time Things have happened, they've turned to it, there's a physical addiction, there's also a psychological addiction, and they perhaps don't even want to break that pattern. They know on a conscious level they shouldn't be doing it, it's bad for them, but they still make the decision, and that you know just shows that you don't make, ration, you don't make the decisions rationally. It really does come from another part of, of what you're doing and, and the patterns of behaviour and thoughts that you kind of got. That's why it's so hard to break. So important for, you know... Uh, I guess full mental jacket stuff or resilience if you want to use another word for it is really about just understanding how our brain works, understanding uh, you know what kind of techniques you can use to, to just break a pattern. So if, if, if you're a person with PTSD and you think about the same thought over and over, you know, being shot at for example, um, and that's the thought that just springs into your head because you've thought about it that many times, you've created uh, a bit of a shortcut in terms of the thinking, and so that it's much harder to, to break it because it's now your, your disposition to go to. So ultimately over time what you want to do is break the pattern of having those same neurons wiring and firing together. So the way to do that is, you know, if, if the natural thought is, thought pops in your head, 
you go down a path, you think of the consequences that could have had, you feel sad or you feel scared or you, you know, teary and that kind of stuff. A big part is to do something different to interrupt that same pathway. So you, you're trying to change as many other neurons or involving them as many times. So it could be as little as just using analysis work. So the amygdala, which sort of stimulates, not sort of, which does stimulate the, the fight or flight instinct and uh, pretty much that part of the brain is quite a small part of the brain. And so, you know, once it fires, um, it, it starts a lot of things happening. So ultimately, if you recognize that you're having that thought and you now start to just do some analysis work, it actually for, forces another part of the brain where the analysis work takes place, which is in your frontal cortex. Um, it forces you to use a different part of the brain. So you're slowly trying, if you do that enough times and try and interrupt that thought process, just by doing some analysis, like I used to get people to do a thoughts diary. So, so every time you thought about the incident that you, you know, is is the problem for you, I want you just to write it down in a book and then put down, you know, um, how you're feeling about it or something like that. So, to automatically, by doing that, they're changing that little pattern even just a little bit, but it's a change from the same neurons for wiring firing together. So. Let's just use a stupid number, but let's say, you know, uh, every time they used to think about it, 100% of the same neurons would fire. If they're now thinking of it and only interrupted halfway sort of thing, only half of them are wiring and firing together, but another half somewhere else is wiring and firing together, you start to create a bit of a slightly different pattern and it becomes easier to break that original pattern. And that's the key to any kind of you know, in my view, neurological neurological changes around thoughts and thought patterns and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, some people, there's a lot of different techniques, you know, that's just one kind of strategy that people can use. Some people turn to religion because it changes what they do. Some people change meditation because it actually does some things to you to your uh, your brain waves and, and depending on what state you're in. So a lot of these techniques can all be very valuable to try and change that wiring and firing of neurons and that's the key when we've got patterns of thoughts where you just go back to the same thought you have the same feeling and the same emotion and it's not good for your health then you've got to look at some different techniques that can kind of change that so that's the key around once you kind of really analyze well what am i thinking about why is this actually being detrimental me just doing that and questioning some of those things, again, you're using a different part of the brain. So, you know, self-reflection, self, um, kind of self-help kind of things can all, all add to it. The other thing is, you know, go and do something physical that can break it. Okay, the moment I think about that, I'm going to make sure that I go for a run. Now, you mightn't want to, but the first few times it might be tougher. But again, you're breaking a cycle. So there's there's a number of different ways you can do it. So look, uh, I think that's enough talking for me. That might be my first instalment done. So I hope you get something out of that I'll, I'll definitely be doing uh, a little bit more over the next uh, few weeks but uh, yep I'll uh, thank you very much hope you enjoy it welcome to the second installment of full mental jacket uh, the first podcast was really just a, a basic introduction around <clears throat> people understanding how habitual thinking is really big around neurons firing and wiring together and causing habitual thought patterns if you like so if someone gets stuck in having the same thought patterns and look we are creatures of habit um we kind of 
want to do things easier for ourselves even in our thinking so when we learn something new you know it's a lot more difficult because we have to concentrate and really think about it so if you think of you know learning to drive um, you know everything's thinking and it's quite taxing on you to to do but as as you do it more and more often your brain and your body and everything goes into autopilot and learns it and just becomes automatic and, and I guess all our thinking is kind of like that uh, to to be a bit habitual uh, which is fine for 99% of the time but when things do get a little bit uh, or sorry when you get thought patterns that become detrimental to you or destructive to you that's when those patterns or that kind of shortcuts and habitual thinking does kind of hurt you so if you think about it as uh, you know something bad happens or, or you think about the same thing over and over and to the point where you can't think of anything else and, and it becomes destructive to you and takes you down a path where you can't kind of act or behave in what you would consider normal behavior and and that's when it becomes a problem for you because your body starts to to do things that I guess it shouldn't be doing long term. There's a really good saying about you know no one no one ever drowned by falling in the water. You drown by staying there, and it's no different with your thought patterns. If um, you know emotions and and thoughts aren't bad things, they just uh, you know sometimes they're designed to to be there for the short term and and to get you out of out of bad situations but if you stay there they can be destructive and your body chemistry can change which is how people who get depressed over time you know they don't start off depressed and there's there's certainly evidence that shows that the depression actually affects even your hippocampus and the size of your hippocampus and stuff like that so um, ultimately it's not a one-off episode if a person who has a one-off episode doesn't actually affect that but people who who stay there they slowly over time the campus becomes smaller so it has an effect on your body in terms of what your thoughts are like and what your thought patterns stay like so it's important that once you understand that to change something like that and the, that neurons wiring and firing together is about shifting the same thoughts a little bit at a time sometimes you know if it's been going on for a while it's a lot harder obviously so if you think of it as you know when they say being a rut a rut is really the old wagon wheel days where you know enough wagons go over a trail and it it creates a rut so basically you kind of you just ride in the rut and you stay in that rut uh, rather than going outside of that rut and creating a whole different path so if you think of it like that what you're trying to do from a neuron perspective is trying to create a slightly different path and, and moving away from just going down that same little pathway, if that makes any sense. So when, when I've been dealing with people with PTSD or, or helping people try and, and change some habitual thinking, and, and addicts are a bit the same, you know, they, they, they always say that, you know, addicts that have been through rehabilitation and that kind of stuff, they really need to change even the environment they go back to, if they hang around with the same people that they were as addicts, they hang around the same places, uh, it, it just creates or recreates what was happening before when they were taking the drugs and they're more likely to go back to it. So the, the key is about trying to make as many changes and doing things as differently as you can 
uh, to make any kind of changes. So if, if I focus on, I, I kind of want to really focus on, on young kids and, and suicide uh, because it, it is not just a topic, it, it's, it's, I guess, the reason I started doing a lot of this stuff and even the reason I'm writing the book that I've, I've done uh, is around, you know, you've got young people who are very impressionable. Your brain as a young person is a little bit different uh, in terms of your age. I, I talk, when I, I run sessions with teams, I talk about red brain, blue brain, and all I do there is really focus on how your natural basic instincts, your fear of fight or flight instincts, which is um, stimulated by that amygdala, um, how, how that can kind of be very counterproductive for you if you let it, if, if you uh, don't keep it in check. So, you know, over time, as, as kids, I mentioned, you know, you you pick up patterns of thought, you pick up patterns of thought that uh, are quite passive and unconscious, and then it, it gets wired into your body, and as I said, a lot of the decision making you have can can come from how you feel about things and the emotion that you attach to it over time. So if you think of it from a um, a suicide point of view, if, if you've got a, a young person who's being bullied at school, um, you know the, the the social component is sometimes overlooked around what we do. So yes, we we have our our normal psychology piece, uh, but you add the and that's a personal thing. But when you add the social aspect, because we are social beings, it, it changes things. So if you use the example of, you know, you, you're out with your friends and you fall over uh, and people laugh at you, 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 you don't take it too badly um, and, and you just brush it off and, and you probably laugh with them. But, you know, let's say now you're suddenly at school and you're in front of an assembly or something and you fall over in front of, you know, a girl or boy that you like and then some, and a lot of other people are laughing at you suddenly there's an embarrassment factor now it's not just the same um the same way you look at it it's the same physical process for you you've fallen over people are laughing at you but now because of who those people are it suddenly takes on a whole new meaning because of how you filter that in your head around a number of things so it's it's no different with bullying when you think of bullying Bullying is literally someone saying something. Yes, there's sometimes a physical bullying where, you know, someone's trying to intimidate a person. But with cyberbullying, for example, people will say stuff to or post things to, to embarrass someone. And that's kind of where how they deal with it or how the, per- the child deals with it becomes such a big thing and how they process it in their heads becomes such a big thing. So literally, again, if I, if I use the red brain, blue brain side of it, Red brain to me is where, and I'm, I'm being very simplistic, I know there's obviously a lot more to what's being firing and, and what parts of the brain are being used, but I, I kind of just want to keep it simple where any, any thoughts and emotions, I'll call red brain, that can be destructive if you stay there. And, and that's kind of where, where I'm, I'm focusing because the if you just keep it as red and blue, to me blue brain is, is really your conscious thoughts and how you can think your way out of it and the red is more that unconscious emotions and and maybe a little bit conscious as well but the ones that can be destructive if you stay there if you're laying in that water as as the saying goes then it can be a bad thing so a big component of that is how do we as as you know parents how do we as as schools and teachers and, and education systems help uh 
school-aged kids uh, to, to deal with this better. One of the key things uh, I came across was something called the dialogue model, which is very much focuses on you know how we have conversations and and when people feel uncomfortable having a conversation again the red brain or the or the fight or flight kicks in and, and people won't have conversations that can actually help them so if, if you're being bullied that's one of the reasons that people don't speak up you know they, they don't want to be rejected they don't want to be uh, a number of things that come into the head about even you know I don't want to be the tattletale I don't want to tell on someone and and there's a fear factor of, of having that happen. It's the same with, you know, I've worked with a lot of ex-army vets and that kind of, and police, and, you know, there's the whole macho thing around um, not being able to cope. So people, and, and when I say macho thing, it, it, again, it's a, it's a fear factor of, oh, you know, I don't want anyone to think I'm weak or I don't want people to to think um, I'm a lesser person. And, and you know, I'm probably... I'm not trying to be sexist, but it tends to be the males that don't do that because our society kind of really pushes towards, you know, males being strong and all this kind of stuff. And and, and it is changing, and it's great that it's changing. But it's important, I think. I think there's 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 more that the education system can do to provide opportunities for greater skills around conversations. The dialogue model is an amazing model that I've come across over the years, uh, which comes from a a book called Crucial Conversations and how to have them, and and you know when I first kind of came across it, there was a um, a publish a publication that was called uh, Silence Kills, and it focused on hospitals and how people who were able to have better conversations and 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 I say brave people again, you know if you think of fight or flight, <clears throat> it's it's about being able to have conversations and be brave in those conversations that have to be had. Some people will shy away from it. Some people will just get angry in those conversations because they feel threatened and the conversations themselves don't become good ones. And so I think that's a really, really key habitual uh, thinking component that schools should implement, especially early on. I don't think we do anywhere near enough of this. When I'm running sessions, even with people who are at work, a lot of times people won't have those conversations. You know, I've dealt with nurses and managers and all kinds of people in various work locations and they just don't feel comfortable even giving some of their work colleagues, you know, real feedback. They'll say stuff to me as a HR manager and say, oh, you know, Clint, this person's done this, this and this. Um, but they don't know, but I don't want you to tell them because they don't feel comfortable. And they, again, fear kicks in. Fear is amazingly um, debilitating and, and holds people back, even in just having a conversation. They'd rather put up with absolute worst behaviour than actually have a conversation with someone. Now, look, uh, that's that to me is is just so common across the board, and, and certainly you know bullying and cyberbullying is is a massive part of that. Like. You know, we hear all these stories of, of kids that, you know, that have suicided and, and people go, oh, I didn't know or I didn't know it was as bad as it was. And it's about feeling comfortable having the conversations that need to be had. And it's so important where I think, that, you know, there's, there's a very good opportunity at primary school level where as a child's coming in brand new to school, no one knows each other, no one's caring about what labels anyone's wearing, you know, you're five or six years old that the schools start to 
really provide that leadership and developing that child to have habitual conversations that happen daily. You know, I, I personally think, and in my book, you know, one of the the kind of ideas around how how we do that and how we set that up so that, that it's it just becomes normal. And because it's not something that's oh, I have to now go and talk. It just becomes every day. What's happening today, kids? All right, let's talk about um, what happened yesterday. Has anyone got any concerns? Let's talk about it. Let's structure it. And if it's structured at the start, the the child or the children become used to, um, I guess, an orderly way of having that conversation. And then that fear factor, it's about creating the safety to have the conversation. Um, And and until the, the teachers and the schools understand that, um, it just doesn't happen and people won't have that conversation naturally. Some people are more brave, if you want to call it that. Some people are, um, you know, have parents who teach them maybe better and they're, and they're better socially. But I, I just think that's a skill and, and now with you know skill that, that don't, I guess, we don't use as much as we should. It's probably even getting worse now with using the phones. You see young people on the phone so much more and, you know, they'll text people who are sitting four metres away from them rather than go and talk to them. Again, it's, you know, if you think of it from an office environment, some people won't confront someone or, or talk to them. They'll send them an email uh, rather than go and have the conversation because there's a fear factor again. And, and, I, and I just see it all the time where the the really good conversationists and the really good social people can really deal with their problems a lot better. And what you find is that, you know, someone will go and only talk to someone when, they, when they've had the last straw and it's kind of bang, it goes off and you hear these shootings in America especially where you know someone's been bullied for years and years and years and then they finally crack it and bang, something big happens and they go, oh, you know, we kind of saw that happening, you know, the, the, the kid was isolated and blah, 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 blah and, and you know, the teachers, they, they deal with it in in, a, in, a, you know, in the ways they can because the system doesn't allow for some of those things. But I think... Um, it's not about punishment, it's about being so proactive and actually understanding what um, the same people that do the dialogue want to call vital behaviour, where vital behaviour is allowing those people to have those conversations really early on, structuring it in a way that the schools can actually um, develop the child, develop their bravery and, and also allow them to, to feel comfortable to have those conversations. The unfortunate thing is that no, no one spends the time to do that. So if you think of it from a neuron's wiring and firing together, if you're a child and you come into school and someone's picking on you and you don't have the opportunity or you've, you haven't got the skills yet to have that conversation, so you say nothing um, and then you know it continues and you say nothing and it continues and you say nothing and you cry and you do all the other stuff in the background and you get picked on even more, blah, blah, blah. And then over time, you, you develop that... Um, that overall fear or you think you're worthless and all that kind of stuff. But if you came into school and the, you know, they, they, they set it up in a way that every day we're going to have a conversation about what's been going on at school the day before. Uh, so we come in in the morning and say, yeah, has anything happened yesterday that anyone's uncomfortable with? Uh, you know, we, we want to know that, how you're feeling about it. And, and people get used to having those conversations on a daily basis. So if I'm the person that's a bit of a bully and I'm picking on you uh, and you say it in front of the class, saying, look, you know, Clint, yesterday he called me whatever 
and it, it actually made me feel sad. And then we actually have a discussion about that, a blue pool discussion as the dialogue model kind of sets it out. And then ultimately we can try and deal with it, but we're dealing with it in a constructive way. It's regular. We get used to having it. I might feel uncomfortable the first few times I have it, but if enough people do it in, an, in the social context, this is the key around the social context. Most kids at school aren't bullies. Most kids at school will see someone get bullied and they'll sit silent, not because they want to necessarily, but again, they have a fear factor of doing that. So it's it's a very important component of us structuring that. Yes, you can say, you know, your parents are there to, 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 um, to help the child, but a lot of times they don't know this stuff. You know, I've been around a long time. I've done a lot of research and reading and all that kind of stuff. And, and not everyone does that. And not every child even has parents that are, a capable some of them you know as a police officer i've certainly seen people or young children who've got nobody chance of their parents helping them with anything if anything their parents are the worst thing they can have around them so you know put that child in in a school environment a they're probably not going to be in a great school b they've had very little kind of interactions with other people other than the same kind of people that their parents hang around with and so they're way behind the eight ball and and more than a lot you know if you think of it from a a risk factor perspective, um, they've just got added risk factors. They're, they're, they're basically pushing shit uphill is the nice way to put it because um, that's the way it is. And, you know, then they, as a child, you kind of go, well, it's not their fault, but then they become adults and, and now you go, well, they should have done this and this and this. And, you know, they end up in prison, they end up in and out of rehab and all kinds of stuff. And so uh, the, the key for me is really about, the schools stepping up a little bit yes we it is up to the parents and we'd love for everyone to have great parents but it's not the reality of the world and so we've got to try and and you know limit those risk factors in some way shape or form at a school level as well as at home yes we should be educating the parents fantastic but again only if they want to do it uh but ultimately when they get to school we have them for eight hours a day so there's definitely some habitual patterns and habitual behaviour that I think that the schools can really help with it. And I see that if if we get people who are doing that, I find that that they'll talk about things more. We we don't promote more talking, as in as in the skills. It's it's all well and good to say, oh, you know, are you okay, day or or certain days. Today's mental health day. Let's talk about it. Go and talk to a counsellor. But ultimately, that's where uh, a big a big fall down comes in is that we don't teach them the skills to do that but anyway look that's that's enough for this episode i think uh going forward i'll, I'll certainly be focusing a bit more on some of that technique so thank you very much